0: October 22 is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Avenues History Podcast, episode number 45, The Color Line, part 5. Last time, we talked about Dr. Howard's attempt to bring the denomination in line with his principles of racial inclusion. We can call it his idealist policy, and his idealist policy failed. And in the end, Louis Sheaf and his people's church defected from the denomination because the denomination failed to show black Adventists the same level of support that they had shown white Adventists. And I guess that's that. So, Louis Sheaf and his people's church were no longer within the Seventh-day Adventist denomination, and it felt kind of weird. This wasn't really like those other times where people had left the church huffing and puffing and threatening to blow the church down. Louis Sheaf didn't become an enemy of the church. He became, well, he remained a Seventh-day Adventist. He never saw himself as anything else. He still went around Washington, D.C. with his Bible, trying to get people to keep the Sabbath, just like every other Adventist preacher. Sheaf just carried on as he always did, except with less drama. Meanwhile, back at HQ, this lack of drama is part of what worried church leaders. Eve had eaten the fruit of separation from the denomination and she didn't die. What if other churches reached out their hand to eat too? What if every time a church didn't like something that General Conference President Arthur G. Daniels did, they would just threatened to leave. Nearly everything Adventists had built in 60 years would fall like sand between their fingers. A.T. Jones and John Harvey Kellogg were both out there preaching the virtues of Sheaf's congregational model. Now, I should pause and make it super clear that a congregational model has nothing to do with the hottest person in your church. Congregationalism is the type of church organization where each local congregation has supreme authority, like Baptists in America, or, well, Congregationalists. And the chief benefit of Congregationalism is obvious. The local church gets to make all the decisions and keep all of the money, making it rain dollar bills on that kid's VBX program. Maybe this year we can get t-shirts and congregational pastors could get paid more or less, depending on the size of the congregation. Now, the people's church was big enough that Sheaf's salary was nearly doubled once he left the denomination. So Daniels didn't want to take chances that other congregations might want to follow the charismatic Sheaf out the door. So he did what Adventists do in this kind of an emergency, He wrote articles in the review. Oh yeah. He wrote 15 articles in the review, retelling the story of why the church organized the way it did. He reminded Adventists that, yes, once upon a time when the world was young, we had tried this congregational style of organization and it had failed. People died. Okay, no one died, but it was a mess, right? It was like the time of the Israelite judges where everyone just did what they thought was right. Daniels knew that if each congregation was independent, then it would be virtually impossible to sustain Adventism's global invasion. It would be virtually impossible to sustain that network of sanitariums and schools across the world. In that case, Adventism would become... Tribal to Daniels, this was certainly one of the gravest existential threats the church had ever faced. But the Congregationalist rebellion that Daniels and company feared never happened. The fear that all of the black churches might follow Sheaf out of the denomination never happened either. 1907 was a year where the Avon ship seemed to narrowly miss two icebergs Kellogg. Sheaf. Kellogg and his friend Jones were smooth operators, but they had played their hand too quickly by confessing that they didn't think Ellen White was a prophet, and now no flock of Adventists were going to follow them after that. Sheaf, on the other hand, was not interested in becoming a new Moses to lead Adventists out of Adventism and into some new promised land. He simply believed that Adventists had lost sight of the ball, and if they weren't going to swing for it, then he was going to knock it out of the park himself. That ball, of course, was the color line. Sheaf had come to believe that the color line issue had, in Doug Morgan's words, quote, become a decisive test of Christian integrity, surpassing the Sabbath in significance, end quote. Of course, if the Sabbath was among the most significant theological issues in Adventism, then the political side of the Sabbath were Sunday laws. Adventists had no problem appearing before Congress or publishing papers to influence the public about Sunday laws. And now, in the early 1900s, the imminent danger of a national Sunday law had relaxed. This wasn't 1888 anymore, or even the 1890s. Since then, Adventists had made more of a point to preach the gospel, And just as Sunday laws were a denial of the true Sabbath, wasn't the color line a denial of the true gospel? In Sheaf's mind, he was simply being consistent with where Adventists had always stood. This was the present truth, and if the denomination was going to continue to hinder his pursuit of that truth, then he and his congregation would press on being faithful alone. The church leaders clearly saw this issue differently. Daniels' 15 articles on organization make clear that there are principles that underlie the church's organization, and these principles were based on the Bible and based on history. Ellen White, by the way, had supported it too. So for Sheaf to reject these principles, it was to reject, at least in part, the Bible itself. What's more, Daniels naturally saw Sheaf's congregationalism as part of a larger plot, by Kellogg, Jones, and a handful of other former Adventists to sow discontent among Adventist churches and peel them away from the denomination. Standing on his tippy toes, Daniels declared, quote, The sanitarium leaders, meaning Kellogg and Jones, thought that they were strong enough to defeat the General Conference. They have found that they were mistaken. Now what they failed to do by firing a broadside, they were attempting to do by piecemeal. Their aim is to sow disaffection among the separate churches. End quote. Daniel's had his armor on. To him, the Sheaf and Kellogg situations were now linked in one grand conspiracy to destroy the church. And yet the story with Sheaf played out differently than the story of Kellogg in part because, though though Sheaf was every bit as crafty as Kellogg, he, he wasn't malicious. So Daniels kept his armor on, and an attack never came. As the late Ben MacArthur wrote, quote, At heart, the problem was a lack of trust. End quote. Sheaf and Daniels fundamentally misunderstood each other. Something of a truce followed. Adventists felt at liberty to visit Sheaf from time to time, and Sheaf cheerfully entertained them. Adventist leaders heard of Sheaf continuing to pitch his tent and preach the Sabbath and other Adventist doctrines too. And when Sheaf's wife and daughter lay on their deathbed, Adventist leaders sent money and came and visited. Sheaf would eventually remarry, and guess what? He married another Adventist. So, though Sheaf took his congregation out of the larger church, Sheaf himself and many of his members maintained their deep ties to the church. Matthew Strachan also helped. Strachan was chosen by church leaders to go to Washington, D.C. for the same reason Sheaf was chosen years before. He was a good black preacher who would be immune to the ideas of certain local elements. Lewis Sheaf was chosen because Daniels believed that he would be immune to the ideas of Calstrom and Dr. Howard. Strachan was chosen because Daniels believed he would be immune to the ideas of Lewis Sheaf. Strachan pitched his tent, preached, and started yet another church in Washington, the Fifth Church. It's going to get really hard to add all these up, guys. Can we give them some names or something here? His job was made hard by the fact that many of his converts ended up at Sheaf's church because Sheaf was a world-class preacher. No offense, Matthew Strachan. And the first church opposed Strachan because Strachan was planting yet another all-black church. But Strachan also picked up where Sheaf left off, pestering the general conference for more money, more priority, and more respect. He wrote, quote, while money has been and is being raised to pay for schools, sanitariums, and churches, and other places, and for other people, how shall we excuse ourselves from the responsibility of establishing the same for the Negro in Washington, the metropolitan and cosmopolitan Negro city of the United States? Strachan then turned the screws by pointing out to the General Conference the, quote, painful contrast between the provisions which you have made for yourselves and the crying lack among colored people here in the district. End quote. That comment was aimed at the wonderful sanitarium and school the church had built for white people there in DC. So guys, if you're wondering why you aren't getting as far as you had hoped with black people, this is why. While Strachan, like Lightchief was ignored at first, this continual pressure on the general conference would eventually get them to question themselves. Anywho, another black Adventist preacher named Sidney Scott wanted to bring Sheaf back into the fold. Sidney Scott wrote to Daniels and Sheaf in hope of being the bridge between them. Scott came before Daniels with Sheaf's terms to return to the fold. The general conference should take on the people's church debt. The GC should also set up a school for black people and promise to leave the people's church alone from any meddling like they had done with First Church back in the day. Finally, Sheaf wanted what he called a living wage. No no more of this $15 a week stuff. In turn, if it could be demonstrated that he was wrong, then Sheaf would happily apologize. He would then agree to be moved to another city like Chicago or St. Louis. Scott had a threat of a chance, and he tugged at it. Meanwhile, a member of First Church got Daniels and Sheaf in the same room to talk things out perhaps as a result of Scott's optimism, Daniels entered the meeting expecting Sheaf to apologize and want to come back home. Sheaf, perhaps also as a result of Scott's optimism, also entered the meeting expecting Daniels to apologize. And as a result, does anybody want to guess what happened? No one apologized. In Sheaf's view, the general conference had done him wrong. They didn't pay him enough, They built hospitals his people couldn't use. So until Daniels addresses this stuff, there could be no reconciliation. For his part, Daniels was outraged that Sheaf should have terms. The General Conference shouldn't have to beg churches to join. If you believe what Adventists believe, you should belong, period. Scott had tugged the thread right out of the fabric. But it was worth a try, right? And if it was worth one try, it was probably worth two tries. William Green, that attorney we talked about last time, whom Sheaf had brought into the church, tried his hand at peace. But before Green could try, Daniels needed his help with First Church. First Church was upset over their new pastor. It's amazing that that happens, right? Because this new pastor had previously been the pastor of the Fifth Church, the church that Matthew Strachan had planted. Because Fifth Church was an all black church, First Church bristled at having a pastor who didn't share their values of racial integration. A letter from Ellen White cleared it up in October 1908. Directly addressing the roiling churches in D.C., she took a balanced approach by criticizing both sides. To the churches pushing for inclusion, that is, First Church, she wrote, quote, if it should be recommended and generally practiced in all our Washington churches that white and black believers assemble in the same house of worship and be seated promiscuously in the building, many evils would be the result, End quote. Now, when she talked about black and white believers being seated promiscuously in the building, she meant seated together. She didn't mean whatever it is that you were thinking. In any case, reading carefully, you'll notice that Ellen White wasn't against churches integrating. She was against the agitation for integration, the campaign for integration, which she said would do more harm than good. Now, to those who thought inclusion was categorically wrong, that white and black believers should not, should never be worshiping together, she wrote, quote, both white and colored people have the same creator and are saved by the redeeming grace of the same savior. Christ gave his life for all. He says to all, ye are bought with a price. God has marked out no color line, and men should move very guardedly, lest we offend God. The Lord has not made two heavens, one for white people and one for colored people. There is but one heaven for the saved, end quote. First Church held on to Ellen White's words like fresh water. Yes, she did reaffirm the pragmatic policies of racial exclusion that they despised, but she also reminded the church that these pragmatic policies were precisely that, pragmatic. They were useful for the moment and were not intended to go on forever. The heart of the matter was that God does not recognize the color line And he is the same God for everybody, so just be patient. And it should be said that, over and over, experience in the South vindicated this pragmatic policy. In 1909, the president of the Southern Union reported that, quote, people with vague ideas and fanciful notions of what is needed come South, are disappointed, and sometimes do more harm than good, end quote. That sounds awfully familiar. It sounds like something Kilgore would have said back in the late 1880s, 20 years before. These northern adventurers failed to appreciate the racial tension which, the union president said, sometimes flared up into, quote, the manifestation of the worst that sin has developed in humanity, end quote. Anyways, when Daniel stopped by First Church to work things out, he was delighted to find the church willing, in his words, quote, to bury the entire past and start together in full harmony and union. End quote. Then he added, quote, "The General Conference will stand related to the church just as it does to every other church on exactly the same ground, and we shall work together." End quote. Now Daniel's might not admit it but things had changed in the past five years. We've come a long way from Daniel's wanting to split first church up and segregate it. Now he recognizes the integrated first church as a perfectly healthy, full-blooded member of the Adventist family. Given enough time, might church leaders someday come to see first church as a model church on race relations? Momentum was slowly sliding in that direction. Well, after failing to persuade Sheaf to return again, William Green affirmed that Daniels was right and Sheaf was wrong. This next generation of black leadership, raised in Sheaf's garden once his shadow was gone, was beginning to take over. They were giving the church another chance. The next generation of black leadership, were making their presence known at the 1909 General Conference session. 20 years ago, there had been less than 50 black Seventh-day Adventists. Now, there were near a thousand. That doesn't sound like a lot and perhaps it could have been higher, but there were only about 80,000 Seventh-day Adventists worldwide. So that meant that one out of 80 of them were black. In the newly formed Southeastern Union Conference, which was cut off from the Southern Union Conference and consisted of the Carolinas, Georgia, Florida, and parts of Tennessee, 15% of the ordained pastors were black. Sanitariums were being built for black people in Nashville and down at Oakwood. Schools were being built too, mainly in the South. In the months leading up to the session... Several black preachers began provoking a conversation on one of the things Louis Chief had wanted the most a department of the General Conference specifically focused on black people. Tired of being an afterthought? They wanted their own representatives. No taxation without representation and all of that. Or tithation without representation? I don't know. Some leaders bristled at this kind of advocacy but Daniel supported it. He confessed, quote, we have been urged, especially by Ellen White, to do more. We have tried to gather funds, we have tried to do more, but we have not been meeting our own highest ideals, End quote. Well, that's about as close as you'll get to Daniels realizing that his leadership had failed Louis Sheaf in many ways, but oh well, Moving past the past, Daniels declared, quote, I believe that this will mark a new era in our work in behalf of the Negro race, end quote. Prominent black voices like James K. Humphrey, William Green, and Thomas Branch cheered the move. Sidney Scott supported it, but warned that this new Negro department had better have black people in leadership. Well, good news, buddy. The promise was that this new department would have a fair representation of the field, that's the phrase used, in its leadership. But fair is a tricky word that apparently can mean many things. I imagine black Adventists thought fair meant that the leadership of this department would consist of black people from across the nation. To general conference leaders, fair apparently meant a mixture of white and black people. And by mixture, I mean an evenly divided committee with all-white leaders, so the end result was that the whites had more voting power. Anyway, that arrangement wouldn't last forever. Nine years later, in 1918, William Green would finally take it over. Another noteworthy event happened in 1909. Ellen White showed up. These days, Ellen was based in her Elmshaven home in the Napa Valley, about 70 miles north of San Francisco, and this was to be her final general conference session. So it's noteworthy that when she decided to head east to Tacoma Park, that she stopped in Nashville, Oakwood, and Washington, all centers of black work. When she stood up to preach on that first Sabbath, the account refers to her as this aged servant of God. She spoke from John chapter 15, about the need for Adventists to abide in Christ in order to bear Christian fruit. She was 81 years old, and then she spoke 10 more times. In her last sermon, she said, quote, we shall very probably never all meet again on this earth, but I want to meet this people in the kingdom of God. Brethren, we shall separate for a little while, but let us not forget what we have heard. Let us go forward in the strength of the mighty one considering the joy that is set before us of seeing his face in the kingdom of God and of going out no more forever. Let us remember that we are to be partakers of the divine nature and that angels of God are right around us, that we need not be overcome by sin. I pray, God, that this may be the experience of each of us and that in the great day of God we all may be glorified together." Then the white moved to sit down. But before she took her seat, she turned around, lifted up her Bible, and said, Brethren and sisters, I commend unto you this book. Ellen White had been planting seeds of kindness in the church for decades now. Sometimes they grew and bore fruit, and sometimes they didn't. At the very last meeting of the 1909 General Conference session, Arthur G. Daniels urged A.T. Jones to return to the fold. One witness recorded it, and it's worth quoting at length. Daniels, quote, made a very tender and touching appeal for him to forget the past and come back to the stand, shoulder to shoulder, with his brethren. He assured him that we all loved him and that we wanted him to go with us in the march toward the kingdom of God. Extending his hand across the table, he said in a choking voice, Come, Brother Jones, come. At this, Brother Jones arose, started to reach his hand across the table, only to drop back. Several times, as Brother Daniels continued to plead, saying with tears in his voice, Come, Brother Jones, come, Brother Jones would hesitatingly reach out his hand part way across the table and pull it back again. The last time, he, he almost clasped the hand outstretched from the other side, then suddenly pulled it back and cried out, no, no, and sat down. That was one of the saddest scenes that I have ever witnessed. There were not many dry eyes in the seminary chapel that afternoon. We all loved Brother Jones, and it grieved us to see him go out into the dark." That was the end of the line as far as the church and A.T. Jones were concerned. But at the next general conference session in 1913, Lewis Sheaf was invited back. Lewis Sheaf took Daniels' hand, for neither side had benefited from their separation. "'I want to say this morning,' Sheaf told the delegates in 1913, "'that I feel I am in the house of my friends.' The people's church felt likewise." They sent a letter to the session, quote, After more than six years of separation from Conference Connection, we are convinced that the separation was a sad mistake, for which we are heartily sorry. We desire to unite with you to help close up this glorious message of love and mercy. End quote. Everyone rejoiced. One by one, black delegates welcomed Sheaf back into the fold. Sheaf was welcomed back into the fold, but not back to D.C., because Daniels wanted the repentant chief as far away from the temptations of that city as possible. Of course, if you're looking to place chief in a temptation-free city, they might have chosen a place other than Los Angeles, but geographically, at least, it was as far away as you could get from the hot racial politics of D.C. And now I wish I could tell you that they lived happily ever after but the honeymoon didn't last long. Shortly after Ellen White died in 1915, Sheaf again resigned and led his Berean Seventh-day Adventist church there in L.A. away from the conference. This time it was over his frustration with Ellen White's pragmatic attitude toward the color line. He simply couldn't harmonize it with his understanding of the gospel, and because she had died, there was no way for her to intervene. The church there became the first in a small group that called themselves Free Seventh-day Adventists. While many of these Free Adventists returned to the denomination during the 1940s, they still exist with one or two churches in most states. So if any Free Adventists are listening to the podcast, I guess this is where you're getting on the train, so um, welcome aboard. Sheaf and a preacher named John Manns launched this Free Church, purely in criticism of the church's racial policy. So we actually have the formation of a black Seventh-day Adventist denomination. But that union didn't last long either, and Chief and mans split up. The People's Church, too, exited the denomination again, and they would go on to become a Seventh-day Baptist church. And of course, the work for black people would go on within the Seventh-day Adventist church, whose motto seemed to be better really late than never. But the defections of Louis Sheaf, of John Manns, and later of James K. Humphrey were morale busters. Sheaf and Humphrey were the most talented black preachers the church had. But then again, so were Jones and Kellogg and Wagner, and we lost them all in the early 1900s. What can we say then about the story of the color line? We desperately wanted to have a happy ending, to say that at some point, like usual, the church worked out its issues and it was relatively smooth sailing from there. It'd be nice. But the story of the color line is a story of faithfulness and frustration. It's the story of vicious racial attitudes in America, of white church leaders never fully understanding their black brothers and sisters, of empty promises, of good ideals compromised by hard realities of tragedy and success all wrapped up together. Perhaps we do not have a satisfying conclusion to the story of black Adventism at this time because white and black Adventists still don't understand each other well enough. Though things have improved dramatically since the early 1900s, there's still some latent frustration and perhaps even mistrust in some corners. As a pastor, one of the questions I get asked the most is why Adventists have racially separate conferences. Well, that's not exactly the right way to put it, but there's no doubt that some healing needs to happen. Looking back, it's amazing that a church so on fire about abolition and freeing the slaves could stumble and trip their way forward On issues of race relations. The goal of these episodes has not been to assign blame to one side or to the other, to figure out whose fault it was, but to recognize that this is a really, really thorny issue. It's a hard issue to get right, and in many ways still haven't gotten right. And it raises the provocative question how do we relate to one another in light of the gospel? That's been a question that's very difficult to apply for the past 2,000 years. Looking back at the history, a number of things are clear. One of them is that Ellen White's pragmatic policy, while useful in the beginning, went on for too long after her death. Many only paid lip service to the ideal and refused to challenge the status quo until the culture had finally caught up and surpassed them. And people like Martin Luther King forced them, forced them to confront a pragmatic policy which, in light of the 1950s and 60s, was woefully inadequate and behind. In closing, it's worth meditating on what the Adventist prophet said. Quote, both white and colored people have the same creator and are saved by the redeeming grace of the same Savior. Christ gave his life for all. He says to all, ye are bought with a price. God has marked out no color line, and men should move very guardedly, lest we offend God. The Lord has not made two heavens, one for white people and one for colored people. There is but one heaven for the saved. Yeah, that seems like a good place to start. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Adventist history content, then go subscribe to Avenus History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Avenus History Project. You can get access to Avenus History Extra on the website, which is AdventistHistoryProject.org, or by becoming a patron at Patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Avenus History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I we had a good episode here in the Avenus History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in 7th Avenue's History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So if you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour. So I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay. I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening.